Thanks, Jody. All right, so uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in our uh, sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, more specifically uh, on our series within the series on the Lord's Prayer. Um, now, we've been calling the general series uh, Through the Looking Glass, right, which is, uh, of course, a metaphor for climbing into the reflected world of a mirror where everything is the same and yet backwards, right? And in the same, in the same way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing his disciples about life in the kingdom of heaven and how everything is the same and yet different, right? You still have the first and the last, only now the last is first and the first is last, right? So Jesus is reorienting the perspective of his followers so that they are able to live as citizens of his kingdom. And at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, he is specifically teaching them how they ought to pray. And why do you suppose he's doing that? It is because prayer is absolutely crucial to the reorienting of our hearts and perspectives. Without right prayer, we will never come to love the things that God loves and value the things that he values. And this prayer is particularly revolutionary because uh, it's the first time here Jesus is instructing people to refer to God as Father. Right? This would have been very different to what his lar largely Jewish audience at this time would have been taught all their lives about God being so holy and transcendent uh, that they wouldn't even say his name without fear of offending him, right? And now Jesus is saying that you get to call him your father, right? Like they get to go to him directly without any mediation whatsoever. So in so doing, Jesus is recasting their entire understanding of what it means to be God's people. And the prayer divides neatly into two parts, as we've been seeing so far in this sermon series. There's a section of petitions about who God is and how we ought to relate to him in the world. And then there's a section of petitions about us and our needs, right? And in the first half, we get properly oriented who, to who God the Father that we are approaching, who he actually is, um, because only then do we know what to ask him for. Right? And last week we saw that Jesus begins this section of petitions by prompting us to start by simply declaring our dependence on our Heavenly Father by asking Him to provide our most basic bodily needs. But we, as human beings, have been created uh, both body and soul. Right? And because we are both body and soul, we have both physical and spiritual needs. And so here, uh, just as Jesus told us to ask for our physical daily needs, now Jesus tells us also to ask for our most basic daily spiritual needs, the chief of which is the need for forgiveness. As John Stott put it, he said, forgiveness is as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is for the body. You could say that forgiveness is the daily bread of the soul. Um, and you'll notice that this petition actually comes in two parts, which is interesting, right? Because the previous petition simply read, give us this day our daily bread. No qualifiers. 
right? It doesn't say give us this day our daily bread as we have given bread to others. No, it's just give us our daily bread, period. And so we should expect then that this next petition about our spiritual needs would follow the same pattern and simply read and forgive us our debts, right? But it doesn't end there. It goes on to say, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus add this qualifying clause? And additionally, we should ask why this petition is the only one singled out by Jesus for extra commentary. If we continue reading, uh, Jesus concludes the prayer and then immediately reinforces this petition. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So these are terrifying words. And they need some explanation. But let's start by simply realizing that Jesus is saying that when it comes to forgiveness, we actually have two needs, right? The need to be forgiven as well as the need to forgive others. Jesus is pointing out that these two are intimately connected and that you cannot have one without the other. He's pointing out that both kinds of forgiveness are crucial to our spiritual well-being. And so we're going to spend our time unpacking them both, starting with the need to be forgiven. Since the gospel is at its core all about the forgiveness of sins, it makes sense then that Jesus chooses this emphasis for this petition on spiritual need. Right? And remember that these petitions are all about confessing our inescapable dependence on the Father for everything that we stand in need of. And as human beings born into a fallen world, not only under the curse of sin, but also ourselves being corrupt in our very nature, we cannot escape the inevitable consequences of our corruption unless God first forgives us. Unless he justifies us by accepting Jesus' life as sufficient payment for the infinite debt that we owe and crediting the righteousness of Jesus' life to us. We are born into this world with the need to be forgiven. Right? It's our first and greatest needs. Um, kids, especially among us, so you, you remember the story of the, the paralyzed man, right, who, uh, whose friends carry him through town on his cot to see Jesus because they hope that he's going to be healed. And when they get there, the house is so full that they, they can't get in, so they have to remove part of the roof, and they lower him down on his cot in front of Jesus. And do you remember the first thing that Jesus said to him when he saw him lying there in front of him? Jesus looked at this man and he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, presumably, this man had never been able to walk a day in his life, right? And so he and his friends, they're expecting Jesus to heal him physically. They're expecting Jesus to say, get up and walk, right? Because they believe that physical healing was his greatest, deepest need, but Jesus shows us in this story that the forgiveness of his sins was actually his most fundamental need, as it is ours, right? This is true of every one of us, and this is at the center of the gospel. But, as most commentators point out, the forgiveness being asked here is not the forgiveness of justification and salvation. Remember, this prayer is a prayer by the disciples of Jesus. These are people who have already been forgiven, right? Rather, like our daily bread in the petition before it, 
This forgiveness is more about the daily rhythm of repentance that ought to characterize the life of children of God. It is a lifelong habit of seeking God's forgiveness daily. But this raises some questions then for us, doesn't it? Because most of us, we know that we need this one-time forgiveness of salvation that Jesus gives you when you first become a Christian. Right? But if, as the Bible says, in that act, Jesus once and for all pays for all of our sins, past, present, and future, right? Uh, The author of Hebrews says that Jesus saves us to the uttermost. Then why would we continue to ask for forgiveness every day, right? He's already given it to us. If it, it doesn't make any sense to continue asking for something that you've already received, wouldn't that mean that his forgiveness was in some way incomplete? But we know that that can't be true, right? Because Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full. So this must be about something different, right? Maybe it is less about any sort of deficiency or shortcoming in the forgiveness that we've already been given and more about our need to be daily reminded of how desperately we needed that forgiveness to begin with and how without it, we would only be adding to our debt daily, right? Perhaps it is less about needing God to do something new and more about us needing to remember what he has done already. Remember, this whole prayer is about reminding us of who God is and how we relate to him. This is meant to be a daily reorientation habit. And again, we remember who Jesus is talking to, right? He's talking to those who call themselves his disciples. Now, this prayer sits at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And it does so for a reason. It does so because if we who call ourselves disciples of Jesus do not learn to pray this prayer, we will not live as disciples of Jesus. We simply won't. If we know ourselves accurately, we know that's true. We know that we, left to our own devices, will drift back into having a very utilitarian relationship with God rather than a familial one. Right? We will seek for our own wills to be done rather than his will. We will think of ourselves as our own providers and protectors rather than him. And we will go back to desiring vengeance rather than mercy, which is utter poison for our souls. And so this truth, this ugly truth that our natural tendency is to minimize our own sinfulness and to maximize that of others, if we are not daily reminded of our need for God's forgiveness, then our souls corrode, our hearts harden, and we become incapable of real Christ-like love. This prayer is crucial to your spiritual well-being. We we come into this world with a warped and self-serving sense of justice. Our default is to want mercy for ourselves but to withhold it from those who wrong us. But a right relationship with our Heavenly Father is meant to be a corrective to this. Right? That is why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest of the Ten Commandments? Instead, he offers a summary of its two parts. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, 
And the, this is the first and greatest commandment, right? And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? These two things are inseparably bound together. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. But if you fail to love your neighbor, then you reveal that you don't really love God. Um, John reinforces this in 1 John 2. Right? He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in the darkness. He goes on a verse later, he says, but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. We need to be daily reminded of our own need for forgiveness. Otherwise, we won't forgive others. And if we don't forgive others, we call our own forgiveness into question, which brings us to the second need, which is the need to forgive. This is not just a nice suggestion. This is necessary for our spiritual well-being, and that's why it's included here. Look, if we fail to forgive our debtors, we demonstrate that we do not yet understand the gospel. We demonstrate that we do not yet understand the holiness of the God that we have been invited to call Father. And we sang the song, we sang holy, 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 right? It's, this, uh, it's drawn from this passage in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah's in the throne room of God and he sees the heavenly beings uh, covering themselves in the presence of God's holiness. And we do not understand the holiness of God. Um, and again, if we forget, if we fail to forgive our debtors, rather, we demonstrate that we certainly do not yet understand the depth of our own need for a savior. Again, John Stott says this. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. Now, John Stott is not minimizing the kind of unspeakable damage and hurt that others can do to us when he says this. Rather, he's saying that when compared to the offense of our sin against a sinless and infinitely holy God, our earthly wounds are objectively small in comparison. That doesn't mean they're Ill illegitimate. It's kind of like when Paul compares the sufferings of this earthly life to the glory of eternity with Christ, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Again, Paul is not saying that the sufferings of life are small or insignificant, right? He's simply highlighting how they will fade from memory in the glory of the eternal presence of God. But our sins are against this glorious and eternal God. And yet he has seen fit to forgive us. Surely in light of that, we must be able to find a way to forgive the sins of others against us. Which is why this petition concludes this way, right? As we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, there is some difficulty in translation here and how it renders in the English. Um, because at a glance, Jesus seems to be hinging the forgiveness of our sins on the forgiveness of others. But we know that that's not how the gospel works, right? We would be incapable 
of true forgiveness if God had not first forgiven us. Right? There can be no scenario where our forgiveness hinges on our obedience because, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? And again in Ephesians 2, he says uh, that before God forgave us, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Um, so none of us could ever earn this forgiveness. None of us would even be interested in it if he hadn't already gone ahead and done it on our behalf. And so Jesus is framing the relationship between being forgiven and forgiving others in kind of the same way that James teaches about the relationship between faith and works. Right? His point being that a living faith necessarily produces fruit. Therefore, a faith without fruit shows itself to be dead. Likewise, right, one, one who knows all that they have been forgiven of in Christ should be very quick to forgive others of their transgressions against them because their lives are now in Christ, animated by the Holy Spirit as a result of this forgiveness. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, the man who knows he has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others. You see, the proof that you and I have been forgiven is in our forgiveness of others. And Jesus illustrates this masterfully in the parable of the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, right, where uh, a servant owes this insurmountable debt, a debt that he could never pay uh, to a king. And this king calls him forward to collect this debt, and the man asks for mercy, and the king erases his entire debt. But then he goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him what works out to roughly a day's wages, and the man can't pay it immediately, so he has him thrown in jail to be tortured. And when the king realizes or hears of what's happened, he calls this servant back uh, in front of him and, uh, you know, says, you wicked servant, right? How dare you? And, uh, and revokes this forgiveness of his debt and has him thrown in jail, right? And Jesus ends that parable by saying this in verse 35. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You see, the unmerciful servant showed that he didn't understand or appreciate the insurmountable size of the debt that he had been forgiven or the cost of that forgiveness to his master. He showed that by refusing to forgive the comparably small debt of his fellow servant. Now, there's a, a concept that sometimes gets forgotten about in our effort to acknowledge that our forgiveness is of grace alone, right? That we contribute nothing to our own salvation. And, and that concept, which is a biblical concept, is that gifts often come with implicit obligations, right? We are not saved by works in any way, but we are saved for works. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Um, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's all grace. But then he goes on, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
So the free gift of grace is linked to a necessary response to that grace. And in the parable of the unmerciful servant, the forgiveness of his debt was entirely undeserved, entirely unearned, right? But it came with unspoken obligations. The master, the king, was just in his reaction to this servant and his mistreatment of his peer, right? We would never say that that king didn't have the right to expect that servant to be merciful to others as a result of receiving such great mercy himself. It's just, right? Um, Likewise, for us, the forgiveness of sins that we receive is entirely undeserved, entirely unearned, and yet it carries with it the responsibility to be agents of this grace in the world around us. Um, A few months ago, I preached uh, from the passage of earlier in the Sermon on the Mount on being salt and light uh, and suggested that the whole Sermon on the Mount was an illustration of what it looks like, what it means to actually be salt and light in the world, right? We are ambassadors of God's kingdom. And if his kingdom is a kingdom of undeserved forgiveness, then we must represent that kingdom by extending such forgiveness to whomever we come in contact with. This is our responsibility. This is our gospel obligation. So, how does mentioning this, how does having this petition in our daily prayer help us to fulfill this obligation? Because let's face it, uh, forgiveness can be hard. Right? There are times when even the idea of forgiving someone can be like a mouthful of hot sand or worse. But I would suggest that this petition, this daily prayer, functions as a safeguard or a test of sorts. Because every time we ask God for forgiveness on the basis of our forgiveness of others, right, we must take an honest inventory of our own hearts to see if there's any hardness there that could affect the genuineness of our prayer, right? We're effectively asking God to deal with us as we have dealt with others, which is a scary thing, if most of us are honest. And so this prayer, this daily prayer, is an opportunity for us every day to confess any instances in our lives where we are failing to forgive, whether due to the hardness of our hearts or simply because forgiveness is incredibly hard, right? Because we also have the opportunity. This is prayer. We're praying to our Father in heaven who will give us what we need. Uh, We have the opportunity here to ask God's help to forgive because Quite frankly, there are times when it's almost impossible in our own power to forgive someone, right? We need his help. So we have the opportunity when we pray this prayer to ask for his help. He knows better than anyone that forgiveness is costly, immensely costly. And he knows that it's unnatural to us, and yet he has sympathy on us. For that reason, I think uh, that this petition and the next one are closely related in that it's possible that the temptation that we are praying that we wish not to be led into is the temptation to not forgive someone in our lives. 
right? But we'll, we'll dig more into that next week when we talk about that petition. But I just want to end uh, by considering the historical context of these words. You know, Jesus is teaching his followers this prayer, knowing that in the not-so-distant future, he is going to perform the long-foretold act of substitutionary atonement that would secure forever the forgiveness of sins of all who are sons and daughters of God, right? He's going to become himself the payment that eradicates our debt once and for all. He will become the physical representation of God's mercy toward us so that we would never again have reason to doubt God's forgiveness of us. And in just a few moments, our brother Steve is going to lead us in a celebration of the communion meal, right? Where we have the opportunity to touch and taste and see the elements of that meal and be reminded of the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for you and for me as the cost of our forgiveness. And when we take those elements in our hand and we turn our minds to the events that they represent, may our hearts be melted at the remembrance of our great debt being wiped away in the greatest act of mercy, right? As we fix our eyes on a Savior willingly laying down his life to free us from the crushing weight of our sin. May we be changed by it in such a way that we become willing and able to show mercy to those in our lives who require it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we cannot even comprehend the fullness or the immensity of the debt that we owed or the cost of our freedom from it. But we thank you for it. Holy Spirit, work in us a deep and profound appreciation for that that ultimately shapes us and informs all of our relationships, first with you and then with everyone else we meet. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to go to the cross, to be, to be that price that purchased our freedom once and for all, to the uttermost, Lord. Humble us and teach us to continue to rely fully on it. In your name we pray, amen. All right. Uh, we do have a few moments. Um, we typically, when we have time, we allow a few moments for some questions to be asked. Um, and we have that time. If you want to ask any questions, I can't promise I'll have good answers for you, but I'll try. Yeah. Right. It's a good question. Um, a guy, uh, 
who's thinking on this I, I like a lot, this guy named Robert Jones. And he talks about uh, basically forgiveness one and forgiveness two. So forgiveness one he describes as basically what your Christian responsibility is, is to give up the desire for vengeance, to lay it at God's feet, to trust that he will, he's just and he will ultimately right every wrong. Um, so the first, the first part of forgiveness is that, um, that transaction that you make with God where you turn over your desire for justice to be done in your way uh, to allow for justice to be done in his way, right? The part two of forgiveness is the actual transaction between you and the other person. And there are situations where, for various reasons, that's not possible. Right? Uh, the ultimate goal of forgiveness should be a desire for reconciliation. But, again, for various reasons, in this fallen world, there are situations where that's not going to be possible. Um, there's going to be po- situations sometimes where it's not even safe. Right? Um, and so, yeah, that's... Uh, but you do have to do the first part. Right? Um, yeah. That's not right. Yeah. The role of church discipline and forgiveness. Um, I would suggest that uh, church discipline is always something pursued in love. It's always something pursued with the ultimate spiritual well-being of the offender in mind. Um, And so it's never pursued spitefully. Um, It is always... um, it is always an effort to bring the other person to repentance and to restore them to the, the church, right? To a right relationship with the church. Uh, now, if they're unrepentant, that, that is their choice, right? Um, again, the church can only do their half of it, which is to humbly uh, seek their spiritual well-being. That's a good question. I got another question here on my phone about uh, how do we balance God's forgiveness uh, with a view to the legal system? Well, uh, God has put civil authorities in positions of power uh, to ultimately carry out his will. Um, but there are going to be obviously situations in this world um, where, yeah, where that's not done well. But I mean, this, hmm. I don't want to get into the arguments about like how. <laughs> yeah, God puts civil authorities in positions of, of power for his purposes. And again, we trust that he carries out his purposes through them in ways that are mysterious to us. Let's put it that way. Is that fair?